It is good to be here, gathered to see Jesus so that we can listen to him more intently. May his grace, mercy, and peace prepare our hearts and minds to receive his word so we may follow his will. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, You've all heard the term mountaintop experience, right? Well, in today's gospel lesson, we see a mountaintop experience. In fact, it's very fitting that they're on a mountain because on mountains is where God does a lot of his work. And so Peter, James, and John are with Jesus on this mountain, and they're treated with a demonstration of who Jesus is. He's transfigured before them. His clothes are radiant, not just bleached, but intensely white with radiating light. Jesus is showing them a little bit of his glory. Now, they've seen him as a man perform some incredible miracles, but now they see that he's not only man. He's God in human flesh. And where they might be thinking it's not normal for a man to be radiating light, perhaps they'd be better served by thinking that it's not normal for God not to radiate his glory. And yet, in service to mankind, Jesus willingly conceals his glory and becomes flesh to dwell among us. He doesn't give up being God while he's man. He just humbles himself and veils his glory with his human nature. Except for now. Except for this moment on this mountaintop. Here, he's opened a door, a crack, and displays his radiance as the very Son of God. And he's not alone either. Moses and Elijah are there too. And they each have a mountaintop experience of their own. You know, back in Exodus, Moses climbs up Mount Sinai at the Lord's bidding when the Lord descends there. He makes more than one trip up the mountain and speaks with the Lord each time. And God gives Moses his law, the Ten Commandments, and more. And when Moses comes down from the peak, his face is shining with light. Enough so that he has to wear a veil over his face until it fades away. And Elijah has his mountaintop story on the top of Mount Carmel. He's hopelessly outnumbered by the prophets of Baal there to the tune of 450 to 1. And he's challenged them to a contest. He will build an altar and they will build an altar. And each will put a sacrifice on their altar to be burned. But here's the deal. They can't set it on fire. Each has to pray that their God will ignite the sacrifice from heaven. And so the prophets of Baal go first. They pray, they pray, they pray, they fret, they dance, they wail, they even cut themselves. They resort to shedding their own blood to try to make Baal respond, to try to get his attention. But nothing happens. And then finally, when it's Elijah's turn, he has buckets of water poured on his altar to soak everything to make burning even harder. And then he prays. He prays and the Lord responds. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes everything. The sacrifice, the wood, the water, even the stones are burned up. The Lord accepts the sacrifice and thus declares his faithfulness to his people. Those are both some serious mountaintop experiences for the resumes of Moses and Elijah. But our gospel lesson isn't about show and tell or one-upsmanship. We know from the gospel of Luke that Moses and Elijah are there to talk about Jesus, not themselves. It's a further demonstration to Peter, James, and John of who Jesus is. 
Not only is he radiating, but the great prophets of the Old Testament bow to him. As prophets, they pointed ahead to the Messiah, and now the Messiah, the Son of God, has come. And to cap off the transfiguration, God the Father arrives on the scene. He overshadows them in a cloud. And that's, again, very fitting, because Moses and Elijah each had a cloud on their mountaintops too. The Father speaks as the climax of this glorious sight, and he declares, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So just as he did at Jesus' baptism, God the Father announces that his Son is going about his will, and the Father approves. Then suddenly, it's over. Suddenly, Peter, James, and John see Jesus only. Even as the Father's words still echo in their ears, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And as they come down the mountain, they have something to listen to. Jesus tells them to tell no one what they've seen until he's risen from the dead. Risen from the dead? That's got to get them thinking, right? Because to rise from the dead, one would have to die. And how could the Son of God, just transfigured, radiant with his glory, ever die? And why would he ever die? Well, they'll soon know the answer. Later on, those three will uh, see Jesus on another mountaintop. This one's called Calvary, or Golgotha, the place of the skull. They'll see Jesus lifted up, but far from glorious. His clothes won't be radiating light. They'll be in the hands of a Roman soldier who just won them gambling. It'll be with two men, but not Moses and Elijah, but two robbers who are crucified with him. And they'll be talking about Jesus. One will curse him as he dies, and the other will call upon Jesus for salvation. And that certainly looks like a lost cause. As the crowd shout out, how can Jesus save a robber if he can't even save himself? Furthermore, the Father is silent on that day. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no response. On Mount Calvary, the Father is not pleased with his Son because he sees our sin. Because Jesus is carrying our sin on the cross. Yes, the hill called Golgotha is a far cry from the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's almost hard to believe that it's the same Jesus in both places. It's hard to believe that the once transfigured Son of God is the crucified one who is transformed from living to dead in such a brutal, defeated way. But that's also why the Father told them at the Transfiguration that they should listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Because implicit in that command is listen to Jesus, listen to my son, no matter what you see. What's happening at Calvary is what Jesus came to do. The mountaintop experiences of Moses and Elijah pointed ahead to this one. On Sinai, Moses received the law from God who declared that his people must be holy or else they die for their sin. And on Calvary, Jesus fulfills that law. He's lived a perfect life, actively keeping all of God's law. 
And now the Holy One of God is keeping the law passively. The law declares that the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus is keeping that part of the law too. He's collecting the wages earned by sinners as they've defied God's law. He's suffering God's sentence of death for the sins of the world. Sinners like you and me. As for Elijah on Mount Carmel, on that mountaintop, the Lord accepted the sacrifice to show he remembered his people, and so that evil might be defeated. And on Mount Calvary, God the Father accepts the sacrifice of his Son for the sin of the world. When Jesus declares, it is finished before his death, it's the declaration that the Father's justice is satisfied. He accepts that his Son has paid the price for the sin of the world. It doesn't look like a victory. But it's our victory over sin, death, and the devil. It's life and salvation for you. It's no wonder then that the Father commanded, listen to him. Looking back at all their eyes witnessed, Peter, James, and John would clearly see that they had, had they listened to Jesus, they would have known all along that the transfiguration was leading straight to Calvary. They would have known that the one on the cross was the glorious Son of God doing the work that Moses and Elijah prophesied. They would have known that while God's glory is seldom seen in this world, his word remains forever. As you and I don't see Peter, James, and John, we don't see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. We don't see Sinai, Carmel, and Calvary. Yet the Lord does not leave us without his presence and comfort. He leaves us three witnesses that we might be kept strong and equipped in the faith. And I pray it's no great secret what these witnesses are. These witnesses are word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. The means of grace. You'll never forget, in the words of Romans 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Where does God ever say, where does God's word ever say, faith comes by seeing? It doesn't. It says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's not that the word is some second-rate witness that we're stuck with because we're deprived of miracles. We'll take the word of God over wonders any day because God saves by his word. And also remember, the greatest miracle of all is the forgiveness of sin. And you have that in abundance because Jesus gives that to you. Because he gives it to you through his means of grace. That's why we've gathered here in the Lord's house to hear our sin forgiven and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. Because there's no greater comfort than that. The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh will do everything to fill our eyes with all sorts of things and all sorts of sorrow in order to make us doubt God's commitment. But that's where you make the sign of the cross and say, I am baptized into Christ. If you're baptized, you have the assurance that Christ has redeemed you, that he is with you, that he is always with you to the very end of the age. And in his holy supper, you hear the truth of God's love given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And so, no, we don't see Jesus transfigured here. But by his presence and by his grace, you are transformed from sinner to child of God, from unholy to holy, from dead to living. 
And so with these three great witnesses, you listen to Jesus, only Jesus. Amen.